Kids, I guess you're ready to go to your classes, right? Teachers, ready to go and teach? All right. Well, I don't know if many of you noticed, but I'm not Steve. I know we kind of look the same, uh, but we're different. But uh, I'm just so thankful to be here. It's been many years being in this church body. Uh, I remember the first time I got up and it gave a message how nervous and scared I was. Uh, and then I remembered that it's, it's not me doing all the work. It's God working through me. And it took a while to understand that. Uh, but I'm so thankful and humbled to be able to come again before you uh, with a message God laid on my heart some weeks ago, some, actually a month ago, when I knew Steve was going to not be here. Um, and this, God just laid this on my heart, and so I want to share that with you this week and next week. Um, how many of you have ever uh, contacted, contacted Ancestries.com to look at your backgrounds? Yeah, it's kind of fun to go back and see where you originated from, right? Uh, and so Ancestry does a great job of looking backwards and uh, finding out some surprising things about your family. Um, sometimes you're a little bit offended uh, because family members may have not been the most righteous of people, uh, but they're in your line, right? They're part of your, part of your heritage. Uh, I look back on my uh, time and uh, being from an Italian background, uh, I like to look back at the old country. And I was telling somebody the other day of a story when I uh, used to go up to visit my great-grandfather uh, up in Sonora in a little town called Tuolumne, little small little town. And every Friday when we would go up there, great-grandpa would have upstairs on a long table that had red and white checkers, he'd have a stick of salami, some cheese, some French bread, and some wine from mom and dad. And you could not go anywhere else until you stopped there first. And if you didn't stop there first, he wouldn't talk to you for the whole weekend. That's my ancestry, right? And some of you may share that too. We also made a cookbook that uh, Shelly and I put together some years ago of all my grandmother's, aunt's, uncle's recipes, including my mom and my dad, and put them in a thing, in a, in a, a book called Manja. Okay? And we took that and we gave that as a gift to our uh, brothers and everybody uh, at Christmas time. And it actually, another type of heritage was looking at the background of the different type of recipes and food that you grew up with, and now you have in your hands the recipes so that you can reproduce them again. They're never the same though. I don't know how many of you, but when my grandmother cooked in the kitchen, she always had a large pot and it would take all day. And she would say, it's not what's in the pot, it's the love in the heart that makes it so good. And I remember those times and believe it or not, whatever she put in that pot was excellent. Well, in a way, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to look back in our ancestry of the beginning of the church. Um, a few weeks ago, we, we celebrated Resurrection Sunday. And outside of Christmas, this is one of the most celebrated days for believing Christians all over the world. Uh, Christmas is usually surrounded by an overwhelming presence of presents, right? Stores start to advertise usually right after Thanksgiving, and they continue right up to Christmas Eve and in, even sometimes beyond. Over the past decade, we have lost the true meaning of what that day is intended to be. We were told it was intolerant to say Merry Christmas. You remember that? 
and clerks in the stores were advised to please say happy holidays instead. We filled our baskets. We also filled our charge accounts with things that we wouldn't usually buy or even think about. We get caught up in the frenzy of gift giving and gift receiving. The celebration of our Lord's incarnation loses and continues to lose any depth of meaning as the world around us slowly and methodically and purposely distracts us from the celebration that we truly should be celebrating. Easter, however, is a bit different. The focus is less on gift giving and more about bunnies and candy and egg hunts as well as family gatherings. Over the past decade, more people are becoming increasingly indifferent to this day. They have for many years before been committed to gathering at churches and celebrating the resurrection of Christ. During these few days prior to Easter, we are entertained by the type of movies that mark this day of remembrance from the good old Ben-Hur movie to today's Passion of the Christ. However, this day too is slowly being silenced by the secularism that continues to infiltrate our schools, our social events, our media, and yes, now even our churches. We are losing the importance and the reverence of what that day represents. But what happens the sun, the, after that Sunday? What happens when that Easter Sunday comes to an end? Most of us go back to work on Monday or school or usually back to whatever we were doing and forget about that day until it comes back again next year. Well, we're going to look back over 2,000 years ago. For seven weeks after the resurrection, things would never be the same again. The world had changed, and the effect of the first resurrection Sunday will be remembered for all eternity. We need to put ourselves back over 2,000 years ago and place ourselves in the middle of the city of Jerusalem and sense the events that had just taken place. And at that time, there were gathered between 150 and 200,000, uh, some commentators uh, predicted, gathered for the Passover until the day of harvest, which was 50 days later, as we know, as Pentecost. From Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, there were shouts of praise and worship that changed to cries of death and crucifixion. They witnessed a mock trial, the unnecessary public torture, and finally the gruesome scourging and death of an innocent man who did everything to present himself as the Savior for the human condition called sin. A man that claimed to be the very Son of God, a man that proclaimed that he would be raised on the third day from that grave that was so heavily guarded. With all that was going on from that miraculous, glorious resurrection day is what we'll be looking at the next two weeks. The days and weeks following this glorious day would mark history from that day forward and the world would never be the same. Prophecies fulfilled, promises kept, power given, prayers answered, supernatural miracles performed, and the proclamation of the first sermon preached and the historic beginnings of the church. We will be looking at an overview of these events leading up to the ascension and the Holy Spirit's incarnation and the very beginning of a new message, a loving message, a convicting message, a message of life, a message that affected humanity from that day until the end of days as Jesus spoke about himself. 
Beginning in the first chapter of the book of Acts and continuing through chapter 2, verses 47, there will be many firsts mentioned that had never taken place before. The birth of a new community, protected by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. This new community will have an everlasting impact on the world from that day forward until his return. Peter reminds us in John 6, 68 and 69, when asked about who do people say that I am. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You are our only hope. We have believed and confidently trusted, and even more, we have come to know by personal witness and experience that you are the Holy One of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, we come before you this morning. We ask you to bless your word. We ask you, Lord, to give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. But Lord, as we go through this first chapter and the many things that you have in store, Lord, may we eagerly await what you have to show us. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read chapter 1. Bear with me. I know it's 26 verses, but I want to give you the context of where we're going. I want you to understand the foundation uh, to which I'm going to build from. And I think it's important to read the Word and to understand of how the succession in a chronological order that Luke takes... uh, just meticulously to point this out. So beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men by them in, or stood by them in robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taking up from you in heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. Then they turned to Jerusalem from the mount mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, 
the company of people that were there were about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, two names, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own way. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. There's a lot of stuff in there, right? That is the ancestry. When we look back and we see and read this, there are a lot of things that took place from that resurrection to the 40 days to Pentecost. And I don't want to lose sight of that. Because what I said in the beginning, a lot of times we celebrate Easter and then we forget about it until the following year. But I want us to kind of drill down and focus in on what we're looking at here as a reminder to us of where our church started. Because without that, we wouldn't be here. There'd be no reason for it, no purpose, right? Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and I'm just going to read the, the introduction because it connects here. I wrote this down in my notes and I forgot to put it in context here. Okay. Luke chapter 1. And I'm only going to read verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch, it says, dedication to Theophilus. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write in an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning these things you have been taught. That's his opening line in, in Luke. Some of the background that we're going to build from. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, The first account I made, speaking of his gospel, Theophilus was a continuous report about all things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Verse 2 says, Until the day when he ascended to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given instructions to the apostles, whom he had chosen. The first account that Luke is referring to was his gospel. At one time, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were joined together as one book 
with two volumes. What would have been like if the book of Acts wasn't in the Bible? You pick up your Bible and you see the ministry of Jesus ending in the Gospel of John, and next you read about a man named Paul writing to followers of Jesus in Rome. Who was Paul? How did he get there? How did the Gospel get from Jerusalem to Rome? The book of Acts is the bridge that answers these questions and much more. A great New Testament scholar said that the title of Acts might have been called How They Brought the Good News to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Rome. That expansion from Jerusalem to Rome is a significant story. See, Christianity at the time had nothing really going for it, had no money, no proven leaders, no technological tools to promote the gospel. It, re- it was regarded as a fly-by-night religion that wouldn't last. And it faced enormous obstacles of persecution, ridicule. It was completely new. It taught truths that were incredible to the unregenerate soul. It was subjected to the most intense hatreds and oppositions. And we are witnessing some of that today, wouldn't you agree? We really don't know too much about Luke from the New Testament. We know that he was a physician. Colossians 4.14 says, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. We knew that he was a Gentile by his name, although there's some questions about that assumption. We also know that he was a devoted companion to Paul. 2 Timothy 4.11 says, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. There was a time when many scholars and critics thought that Acts was some sort of romance novel of the early church, written more than 100 years after the events supposedly happened. But William Ramsey, a noted archaeologist and Bible scholar, proved that the historical record of Acts is remarkable, remarkably accurate regarding the specific practices, laws, and customs of that period. It's definitely the work of contemporary eyewitnesses. So who was this man Theophilus? Well, this, might, this man might have been a believer, waiting instruction. He might have been a Roman official being briefed by Luke about the history of this new faith. Or the name could be symbolic because the real name Theophilus means lover of God. In the introduction of Luke's gospel, chapter 1-3, Luke addresses Theophilus with the title, Most Excellent Theophilus, which was a way to address people who held high office at the time. Most ancient books were generally written on papyrus. It was practical to have a scroll about 35 foot in length. And when it got longer than that, it was very hard and bulky to transport. The physical limitations determine the length of the books of the Bible sometimes. Like Luke used two scrolls to give an account of what happened before Christ's death and then after his glorious resurrection. One is the gospel of Luke and the other is the book of Acts. Luke wanted to show Theophilus and the Romans. First of all, Christianity was harmless. Some Roman officials had actually embraced it. Secondly, Christianity was innocent. Roman judges can find no basis for persecution. Now, Roman judges I'm talking about. And third, the Christianity was lawful. 
as the true fulfillment of Judaism, which was already an approved religion in Rome at that time, and that was not against the law. We see instances even now in our day in Canada to make a point that it's becoming almost illegal to preach on certain issues. Over 2,000 years, we haven't gained any. We've lost. Of all these things, the second part says, both Jesus both began to do and to teach. Notice that the former account concerned all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Began. Luke's gospel describes only the beginnings of Jesus' work. Acts describes what I have entitled on your outline, the prologue or the continuation and the work of Jesus that continues even to this present day. Acts spans a period of about 30 years and takes us up to about 60 or 61 AD with Paul in Rome waiting to appear before Nero. And this was the same Nero who began his infamous persecutions of Christians. And if you recall, he burned down Rome and blamed it on the Christians. Amazingly, what Jesus began continues today in churches all around the world. There's a real sense in which the book of Acts continues to be written today, not in an authoritative scriptural sense, but in a sense of God's continued work in the world by His Spirit through His church in and through individual lives. The book of Acts is important testimony of the beginning of this new community, which was divinely appointed supernaturally empowered and protected called the church. The book written firstly to follow our Lord's actual continuance of his divine teachings and workings and secondly to follow the activity and the ministry of the Holy Spirit as the abiding presence of this new community called the church. So the prologue is the continuation of the work of Christ That is what begins the book of Acts, verses 1 and 2. Verse 3 says, Now, here are the proofs. To these men he also showed himself alive after his suffering in Gethsemane and the cross by a series of many infallible proofs and unquestionable demonstrations appearing to them over a period of 40 days and talking to them about these things concerning the kingdom. Jesus gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days. This is the seven week between the Passover and Pentecost. The number 40 recalls the 40 days during which Moses received instruction on Mount Sinai. But here it is Jesus who gives the instructions, this time from the Mount of Olives. Moses had been given the first covenant for ancient Israel to have, but now the apostles are given the new covenant for the renewal of Israel and to preach the gospel of salvation to the world and teach the disciples. Both can and only be accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. During those 40 days of appearances, the apostles saw Jesus who was alive, who had been dead. They, physic, they saw him physical, they 
excuse me, they saw the physical evidences in his crucified hands and his side. They were left with an unshakable faith in Christ. He was their Savior and the Savior of the world. Of this, they were fully and undeniably convinced. Luke does not ignore the meaning of Jesus' death, but he does not stress it in a way that Paul might in his letters. Luke was more interested in showing that the work of the church was empowered by the living Christ through the Holy Spirit. Its missionary work was not humanly directed. It was based on the divine commission and divinely empowered. He left no doubt that he was resurrected as he had promised. 1 Corinthians 15.6, Paul says, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to this day. More than 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus, and most of them were still alive some 25 years later in the days of Paul's ministry. During the 40 days during which Jesus appeared to the disciples, he spoke about the kingdom of God. And we know from the Gospels that this was the essential part of his message throughout his ministry, as evidenced in the four Gospels. Matthew 4.17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, change your inner self, your old ways of thinking, regret regret your past sins, live your life in a way that proves repentance, seek God's purpose for life, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1.14 and 15, now after John the Baptist was arrested and taken into custody, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and saying, the appointed period of time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, change your inner self, your old way of thinking, regret past sins, live your life in a way that proves repentance. Seek God's purpose for your life and believe with deep abiding trust in the good news regarding salvation. Luke 4:43 He said, "I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also because I was sent for this purpose." And finally in John 3:5 Jesus answered, "I assure you most solemnly say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot ever enter the kingdom of heaven." During his appearances to the disciples, he clarified the meaning of the kingdom in light of his ministry of salvation. The kingdom message now had a different purpose and a different emphasis. The witnesses preached Jesus as the resurrected and living Savior. He was the representative of God's kingdom and will do kingdom work now through his church. The kingdom of God had come with power in the person of the resurrected Son of God. In Romans 1, 1 through 6, Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 
He came not to save the Jews from the heel of the Roman Empire, but to save them from far worse oppression, the penalty for sin, which results in eternal death. In Acts, Luke also stresses that Jesus' rule, his kingdom, was coming in the life of the church. And through the preaching of the good news, the gospel, that was to be accomplished. When Jesus preached those message, messages described in the gospel of Luke, he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. The book of Acts is a simply an extension of Jesus' work. It details the spreading of the good news by those who witnessed the resurrected Christ. So we have the continuation or the prologue, the proofs, and now we're going to look at the promise, verse 4, Acts 1-4. While being together and eating with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait, wait for what the Father had promised, of which he said, you have heard me speak. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. Jesus had nothing else for the disciples to do other than wait for the coming of the Spirit, the promise from the Father. And Jesus knew that they really could do nothing effective for the kingdom of God until the Spirit came. How many of us like to wait? I don't like to wait. You know, when I have a project or a goal, I want to get to it. In some ways, I'm impatient. And sometimes I miss the tree for the forest, so to speak, right here. You're going so fast, you, for, you pass by something. And sometimes I've done that. Sometimes I even do that sometimes when I'm reading. Instead of when God catches my heart or my mind, instead of stopping there and kind of diving in, I just go past it and keep reading because I have a devotional and I want to go through it each morning, right? But I've learned over these, this past three weeks or a month there are places where God wants us to wait because he has something to tell us. So that's what he's telling the apostles. Wait. To wait means whatever it is, it's worth waiting for. To wait also means that the promise made is the promise coming. To wait means they must receive it. They can't create it. To wait means they would be tested by the waiting just for a little while. But he commanded that the promised, the promise of the Father would come when they waited. Can you imagine being in that room for 10 days with 120 people waiting, praying? This is another example of the fact of the Trinity. Okay? The Father promised Jesus is talking, and the baptized, and, and the Holy Spirit will baptize. So you have the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. Three in one. Here we see that Jesus told of the promise of the Father, which is coming, which is the Holy Spirit. And all through the Scripture, you won't see the word Trinity necessarily, but it's undeniable in its description in many places. And one example, as m many of you know, Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven 
said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The son, the spirit, the father. Again, there's no deniability. It's significant that this coming and this filling, this empowering by the Holy Spirit is called the promise of the father. It shows that we should wait for, with eager anticipation sometimes because the promise for the, from the Father can only be good. It shows that the, the promise is reliable. It's trustworthy. The Father would never promise something he could not deliver. And it shows that the promise belongs to all his children since it comes from God, our Father. It shows that the promise must be received by faith as is the pattern with the promise of God throughout God's word. One commentator says, the promise of the Father has now become the promise of his Son. So we have the beginning, the proofs, and the promise. And now, verses 5 through 8, we get to the power. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized and empowered and united with the Holy Spirit not long from now. So when they had come together, they asked him repeatedly, Lord, are you at this time going to be reestablishing the kingdom and restoring it to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the dates which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power and ability when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses to tell the people about me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You shall be baptized with power. The idea of being baptized, and we've had baptisms here at the church many times, is it's to be immersed, to be covered in something. And even as John baptized people in water, so these disciples would be immersed in the Holy Spirit. It might be more understandable to describe the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a condition rather than an experience. And we see that in a lot of different churches, that the experience overrides everything. And he says, not many days from now. The disciples didn't know how many days that was, but they were asked, wait. They knew that the promise of the Father would come, but it would take time. It would be days, but not many days. But Jesus had a purpose in not telling them exactly when it would be. The This emphasizes the importance of the Holy Spirit to the success of the New Testament gospel mission. Luke is telling us that the Spirit is essential to the advancement of the gospel. And as we continue through the book of Acts, we will see that the Holy Spirit plays an important and vital role in every advancement of the gospel. And Luke's point is that the success of the Christian mission is not due to the efforts of charismatic men or women, marketing designs, or media promotions. The gospel will be proclaimed and the church will develop because God willed it. Christ directed it and the Holy Spirit carries it out. Again, the Trinitarian subject. Throughout Luke's narrative, the Holy Spirit is a driving force behind the mission program of the church The agenda for spreading the message of salvation from Jerusalem to Rome is coordinated and empowered only through and by the Holy Spirit. So important is the Holy Spirit in the life of the church that Luke's work 
has sometimes been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit instead of the book of Acts. Luke's theology was God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are easily interchangeable. Verse 6 says, So when they come together, they asked him repeatedly, Lord, are you at this time reestablishing the kingdom and restoring it to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times and the dates or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power and ability when the Holy Spirit comes, both to you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. This would be the last time that they would see Jesus in his physical body until they went to heaven to be with him forever. There is nothing specific in the text to show us that they knew this would be the last time they would see him on earth other than the weight of the question that they were about to ask, which was, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? This question has been asked many times before, but it had special relevance now. They knew that Jesus had instituted the new covenant. They also knew that the restoration of the kingdom of Israel was part of the new covenant. So it was reasonable for them to wonder when the rest of the new covenant would be fulfilled. The response of Jesus in the following verses indicates that he did not rebuke them or even correct them for the question. He simply told them the answer was not for them to know. John Stott says the verb restore shows that they were expecting a political and a territorial kingdom. They were expecting a national kingdom. And they were expecting it immediately. And the disciples certainly knew that many Old Testament prophecies described the spiritual and the national rebirth of Israel. The disciples probably thought that the spiritual rebirth seems certain now and that Israel once again would be restored. Jesus warned them about inquiring against the, into the aspects of the timing of God's kingdom because those things belong to God. It was wise for Jesus not to outline his plan over the next 2,000 years. It was good for the disciples to not know the full restoration of the kingdom to Israel that they had hoped would happen soon. It would be some time before all that took place and we're still waiting. It might have overly discouraged them if he had said it's not going to come for the next thousand years. What motivation would they have to go out and spread the gospel? What motivation do we have because we don't know the time? At the same time, Jesus did not say that there was to be no restoration of the kingdom. He simply said that speculation into that time and date of this restoration was not important for the disciples at this time. And neither it is for us. The resurrected ascended Jesus again showed his submission to the Father. It says, but you will receive power and ability, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. If the national kingdom they wanted would be delayed, that was Okay but the power they needed would not be. They would soon receive power with the coming of the Holy Spirit. With their question about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, it is possible that the disciples still saw power too much in the terms like Caesar's kind of power. 
and not enough in the terms of God's kind of power. Not too very different today. We elevate politicians, elected officials, celebrities, business leaders. We worship technology, medicine, and all other things to be the power of change when in fact God still is on his throne. There is no one or nothing that will ever displace him. No matter how powerful men think they are or become. That gives me hope. When we look out into our world today, many of us put our trust in those particular things. And they're empty trust, empty hopes. You can't change a society until you change a person. You can't change a person until you change a heart. Heart can't be changed until they hear the gospel. That's the succession. If you get enough people hearing the gospel, what happens? Revival, right? All of a sudden, people's hearts change. They start to change society. Society starts to change. We're looking at it backwards. That's why it's so important to understand that each one of us who are believers have been given the same power that these apostles were given on that day. Coming up next week. I don't want to give it away. But we, we retain that same power. A lot of times, though, we're afraid to step out into faith. I really appreciated Dan's encouragement last week. Those of us who heard Dan, who's the street preacher who goes out, and sometimes he doesn't feel like it. But he knows God's calling him to do that. So he does it. And I think those are some of the best times we do things is when we are weak, what? He is strong. We don't go out, go out in our own power. We go out under his power. But there's a fear. There's an apprehension there. But once you get started, all of a sudden, it's like, wow. Now we see God working. And those of us who, who have been out and witnessed to people, whether it be in our families, our, our you know, workers at work or going out and talking with people, the amount of excitement, sometimes you can't contain it. You know, you can see the people changing, their, their minds are going, their hearts are changing, you go, I, you know, and you have to be patient and back away because you don't want to drive them to a profession of faith. You want them to receive it. And that's the power of the Spirit that we have today that they will get next week. I mean, not next week in time, but as we go through, we will see how this power transforms these men. Notice what is said. He said, you will, be, you will go out and you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, first. Judea, yes. Samaria, okay. Ends of the earth. Whoa, wait a minute. Where's the end? At that, did anybody at that time know what the end of the earth was? No. We do now. You know, we understand that, but they didn't. Well, let's look at the gospel, or excuse me, the book of Acts. Acts chapters 1 through 7 describe the gospel in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 through 12 speak of the gospel in Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 13 through 28 tell of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And like I said, we might imagine the objections of the disciples might have had why. 
First of all, Jerusalem. Why would they be objected to that? Well, that's where Jesus was condemned and executed by the word of an angry mob. If they started teaching and preaching this good news, hey, they're going to end up like their master. In Judea, Judea rejected the ministry altogether. In Samaria, Samaria was regarded as a a wasteland of impure half-breeds. In the uttermost parts of the world, oh, God forbid, that's the Gentile world. We can't go there. But God said, if you want to be my witnesses, I'm going to send you to all these places. You're not going to go. I'm going to send you. That's what apostle means, messenger or sent ones. He's going to send them. Well, now we come to the sad part, but glorious part. That's why I entitled it From Glory to the Gospel. We get to verses 9 through 11, which is the ascension. And after he said these things, he was caught up as they looked on into the cloud and they lifted him out of their sight. And while they were looking intently into the sky as he was going, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will return in just the same way as you have watched him go. Whoa. The cloud that received him has been suggested as the the Shekinah glory, the cloud that they had in the Old Testament. And that's associated with the presence of God. And if you remember, when the children of Israel were going through the desert, they had what? A fire by night and a cloud by day. I don't know if you've heard of this description before, but the desert gets pretty cold at nighttime. This fire not only was God's presence, but also kept them warm. And if you don't remember, in the desert, sun is really hot. But during the day, there was a cloud. God's presence still, but protecting So there was a couple ways that you can look at this. But in this particular instance, they're relating it to the same kind of glory. While they were watching, he was taken up. Well, if we look at John 14, 1 through 4, this gives us encouragement, right? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you to go, that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. A reassurance. It was important for Jesus to leave his disciples in this manner. He certainly could have just simply vanished into thin air of which he had the capability to do. But by ascending, it was a way that Jesus wanted to tell his followers that this was the final time you would see me. The last 40 days he'd been appearing to many different people. But this was finality. I know I've been around for 40 days, but now I have to go. Now I have to send to my Father. And remember in Jesus' words, to his disciples in John 16, 7, Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. 
Now the disciples could know that the promise would be fulfilled. The Holy Spirit was coming because Jesus had promised to send the Spirit when he left. This same glorious Jesus reminds us that the ascension and the seating at the right hand of the Father is the same Jesus who will come down again. This is the same Jesus of love, grace, goodness, wisdom, care, forgiveness, justice, mercy, and so many more. This same Jesus they had been with for three years will return again in his divine glory. It says he will also come in like manner as he left. What does that mean? He left physically, but will return physically. He left visibly, and he will return so that all will see. He left from the Mount of Olives and will return to the Mount of Olives. He left in the presence of his disciples and he will return to be present. He left blessings, he left blessing his church and will return in glory for his church. Well, we have an issue. There's only 11 apostles. They needed one more. In verses 12 through 14, we have the prayer of choosing the 12th apostle. It says, when they entered the city, they went upstairs to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John, his brother, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, Thaddeus, the son of James. Well, then what? The key verse. All these with one mind, one purpose, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, waiting together along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They did return to Jerusalem. This was an act of obedience. It was a Sabbath day journey from the Mount of Olives that was just outside of Jerusalem. Very short distance. And they had entered and went to the upper room. There was about 120 people there. And this included the 11 apostles, minus or the 11 apostles, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus, such as James and Jude, and the women who might have been related to the men through marriage or sisters or so forth. But after encountering and witnessing the resurrection of Christ, they were changed. For 40 days they had seen the risen Savior. They were changed. They still weren't empowered, but they were changed. Peter still had a history of denying. Matthew had the stigma of being a tax collector. Simon was still considered a zealot. But there was differences. The resurrected Christ had done something. They were different than they were before. Before, they argued and bickered among each other. Now we see that they are united in prayer together in fellowship. And this was a significant prayer. They all prayed and they continued in prayer and supplication. The idea of supplication is a sense of desperation and sincerity in prayer. We already see the three important steps in making godly decisions. Obedience and fellowship and prayer. And then, then we get to the process from, chapter, from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. And it talks about how the process came about 
One of the days Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters gathering about 120 believers and said, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the lips of David, king of Israel, about Judas Iscariot, who acted as a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he, Judas, was counted among us and received his share by divine allotment in this ministry. Now Judas Iscariot acquired a piece of land indirectly with the money that was paid him reward for his treachery and falling headlong, his body burst open in the middle and his intestines poured out. All the people in the Jerusalem learned about this. So in their own dialect, Aramaic, they called the place of land, as I said before, Hagadama, that is a field of blood. Now for the book of Psalms that is written, let this place of residence become desolate. Let there be no one to live in it. And secondly, let another take his position as overseer. So the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus spent with us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become the witness with us to testify of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph, the one called Barsabbas, whose surname was Justice, and Matthias. They prayed and said, you, Lord, who know all the hearts, their thoughts, their motives, their desires, show us which one of these you have chosen to occupy this ministry of apostleship, which Judas left to go to his place of evil. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven. What is the significance of this? Well, some say if a twelfth apostle wasn't appointed, that it would have looked like Satan won. He got one of his disciples, corrupted him, took him away. That was one, one part. The other part is, is somewhat connected to the book of Revelation of the twelve pillars of the twelve apostles' names. And looking back in this time, of, because it was said in Psalms, they were trying to be obedient to put a twelfth apostle in that place. We don't have to go through the minutiae of all the things about Judas and he tried to hang himself. Obviously, the branch or the tree or the rope broke, he fell, and that was the end of him. But what is important is the qualifications for the person they're going to choose. What are some of the qualifications? One of these must become a witness with us. The disciples were bold enough to make a decision because they knew from God's word that this is what he wanted. The apostle did not see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them yet, but God did not leave them without guidance. They knew what to do from what? From the scriptures. First qualification. Had to be accompanying us from the beginning. That means whoever replaced Judas must be one who had been with them since John the Baptist was baptizing them, who stayed with them during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, and who saw the resurrected Christ. We find no evidence that these qualifications were discovered either in the Scriptures or by leading of the Holy Spirit. We might say that they simply used their sanctified common sense. This seemed to be logical, this casting of lots, to choose the next apostle. This was notable because everything they were doing, they bathed in prayer, they asked for direction, they went to God's word, and they began the process. 
So first of all, you have somebody who was there from the beginning. Secondly, you have somebody who witnessed the resurrection. And thirdly, you had somebody who witnessed the ascension. All three of those notable qualifications had to be in place. And only two men qualified. And they gave us their names. And when they cast the lots, it was essentially drawing straws or shaking rocks until a name came out. But they knew that this was God's choice. They were convinced that this is how God was going to carry out his will through human people, human beings. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. They knew that from the scriptures. The casting of lots may be an imperfect way to discern God's will, but it is much better than the methods many Christians use today that rely on circumstantial evidence, emotions, feelings, monetary desires, and even horoscopes. It's amazing to me of how many people I've talked to who are believers or Christians who read the horoscopes daily. I don't understand but we must respect the testimony of the scriptures on the way this was carried out. Even though we don't read anything more about Matthias, we should not assume that he was a failure as an apostle because he was chosen. Matthias was no more a failure than Matthew or Andrew or Thomas or any of the others. And it seems in all Paul's writings that he never objected to that selection although he called himself an apostle, but an apostle in due time. Here are some possible observational differences between the disciples and apostles. A disciple is accepted. An apostle is chosen. A disciple is a follower. An apostle is a leader. A disciple is a student. An apostle is a teacher. A disciple is a supporter. An apostle is a missionary. A disciple is a listener, and an apostle is a proclaimer. Those are just my observations. I'm sure you could come up with many more out of that. But 34 times the word apostle is mentioned in the book of Luke's and, Luke and Acts alone. The difference before the Holy Spirit, and then the difference after. Every apostle was a disciple, but not every disciple became an apostle. And they were numbered with the eleven. No one faulted these things. For now, after they cast lots, the twelve remained. We most likely would not make many wrong decisions if we followed what the apostles did. First of all, they were obedient. Secondly, they were united in fellowship. Third, they were in prayer. Fourth, they were in God's word. Fifth, they purposed to do God's will. Sixth, they used sanctified common sense. Seven, they followed the example of Jesus in prayer. And finally, they trusted in God's faithfulness. So let's review. Remember I said it in the beginning that this was a book of firsts. So far, that's what's happened in these past 40 days prior to Pentecost. We have first the prologue, the continuation of the work of Christ in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, verse 3, we have the proofs 
The resurrected Christ seen and testified by many. Third, we have the promise. Verse 4, the patient and faithful waiting for the Father's promise. Five, we have the parting, the physical ascension of Christ. Sixthly, we have the prayer, the replacement of Judas as instructed. And finally, seventh, we have the process, the choosing of Matthias according to God's will. Next week, we're going to look into chapter 2. And many firsts that have taken place already will take place again in chapter 2. There's a new message that is going to be preached for the very first time. There is going to be life-changing events that will happen because of that preaching. And not only then, but for the very first time, this will have an effect eternally on those who hear. There are two destinations. Peter's going to make it very plain and simple when he gives his message. This is all building up to that point. The main point that I want you to get is that very first gospel message. Because the detail that Peter takes to recall everything, to bring it to that point, if you remember, the hearers were cut to the heart. I'll get into what that means next week. But when that happens in somebody's life, like it's happened in many of us in this room, you can't deny it. Right? Can't deny it. So if you're sitting here this morning and you have that quickening on your heart, I just want to encourage you. This is an eternal decision. It's not just for today or tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. What you decide affects you forever. Affects those around us forever. We need to understand that even the simplicity of Peter's gospel that we'll look at, the depth and breadth of the intensity that he shares really changed the life of the world from that point on in so many ways. So I encourage you that you can look through that this week, read chapter 2 to just familiarize yourself with it. And hopefully you've seen some things this morning that you might not have realized or known before, but I thought it was important to build this foundation to get to that part. And also to be reminded of our ancestry, of where we as a church have come from, what we are built on, and what we are called to do. That's our mission. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the clarity, the depth, the power, uh, just the, the intensity of your word, Lord, to call us to that place. We are grateful, Father, that you have preserved your word over these many years. And I pray, Lord, that if there be anybody here who feels that sense in their heart, not by emotion or word, but by truth, that they've heard today through your word, not through mine, that, Lord, through the power of your spirit, you would draw them to yourself. You have been sent into this world to take care of our sin. I know it's not a good word that people want to hear, but that's the truth. 
We are all sinners. If we're honest and humble ourselves, we have to admit that. Nobody is perfect in this room. And I pray, God, that you would draw them to that place. Look into their hearts, knowing that they need a Savior. Knowing that anything they do is useless. And many times, as said from this pulpit, it's what you have done in our place. Taken the penalty. Died on that cross. But resurrected to new life. I pray, Father, that if anybody here has that desire, prompted by your Spirit, God, they would surrender that. For it says in your word, today is the day of salvation. So I thank you, Lord, for this time. And as we close with a a song, Lord, may our hearts be lifted today. May you bless us the rest of the day. And Father, may you transform us this week to be used for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.